I'm Jessica Abel, and we're going out on the wire. The show about making stories step by step. This time, we're wheels up, starting an actual honest-to-goodness draft, with plenty of looks back at what you've prepared so far to get you started right, of course. And at the end of the show, we've got a new challenge for you that will keep you on the road to building a great story. This is Episode 6, Proof of Concept. I conduct research in the field of physiology. Not all experimenting is done in laboratories such as this. A certain amount of experimentation goes on under less scientific conditions. Chapter 1. Testing your hypothesis. If you're doing our challenges, at this point you probably feel like you've done a lot already. And you have. You've focused your story idea. You've written character backstory. You've developed a story madlib. You've researched and interviewed. You've developed a pretty complete hypothesis of what your eventual story will turn out to be. It may not be in technicolor, but you're starting to see its form and feel its substance. That's great. So what have you not done? Well, there's that small matter of actually writing your first draft. I call your work so far a hypothesis advisedly. Your job now is to test that hypothesis with experimentation, with action, by writing. The rubber has to hit the road. You've got to just start writing the actual thing itself. And one of the worst moments in your whole project can hit you right now, just as you sit down to start work. Your level of anxiety shoots up. What did you want to say? What do you do first? Why did this ever sound like a good idea? That blank page. Oh, Lord. Remember that feeling you had right back at the beginning of this whole thing? This story needs to be told. Oh, God, I can't tell this story. But here's the thing. Your page is not blank. You've done so much thinking and preparation that it's actually full of potential energy. You just have to release it. So if you're casting around for how to approach the problem... First of all, almost always it's chronological. Because if you tell a story in order, that's the natural way to tell any story. And you get, you get, the, you get the advantage of narrative suspense. That is, if, if you start to line things up, actions in a sequence of like, this thing happened and that led to this next thing, that led to this next thing, it raises the question, what's going to happen next? And narrative suspense is your friend as a writer. And, um, and you want to use the ancient power of that as one of your tools to keep people with you and listening. Ira Glass is a big fan of keeping it simple to start off with. This happened, then this, then this. You've already got a timeline built into your story Madlib. So begin with the beginning. Start with the first thing you know. You can play with the order later. So chronological is the default. I mean, then it's just a matter of your taste. Here are the two or three moments that I know I love. Mm -hmm. You know, I just love these moments. I know this is the thing that's at the heart of it. And then there's like six or eight or 10 or 12 that I like, I kind of like these. And if I come come in, that'll be fine. Of course, I was talking about writing nonfiction here where you're literally choosing among quotes or bits of tape. Anecdotes are great emotional moments. But the same applies for fiction. You just have to use your imagination to invent those moments. Then the only thing you can do is just to start to write the story. So chronological. But chronological what? My stories are usually scene based, you know, Mm -hmm. like structure it's always really hard. But if there is any kind of structural guide, it's that it's thinking more like a filmmaker where things are scene-based. 
Joe Richmond works with people to tell their own stories in his radio diaries. He hands a diarist a recorder and then works with that person over months or even up to a year to self-record his or her life. The final stories are mostly in the demanding style of non-narrated audio, where there's no scripted narration, and the only tape he uses is that which has been recorded by the diarist. Hello, testing, testing. Good morning. This Clarissa again. That's my alarm. Such as in his story Teen Contender with Clarissa Shields, the then Olympic boxing hopeful and now gold medalist. What's up, champ? We're at my dad's house, and we're about to watch the DVD of me boxing. And um, he's going to talk trash. And this is the scene where she's talking to her dad. This is the scene where she's walking over here. This is the scene where she's um, at the gym. This is the scene where she's kind of late night. And there's some diary entries, kind of narration, you know, things that act like narration, that can happen anywhere. And you sometimes what you do is like you're raking everything up into atoms and then restoring it in some way. And so these things can happen anywhere, but the foundation are scenes. Once he's got all that tape, he starts grouping it up, putting thematically linked bits together. Basically, if he's got Clarissa talking alone in her room about boys and her coach at the gym giving her a hard time about boys, he can put those two bits together and start to think about how they could become a scene and then where to place it among the more chronological pieces of the story of Clarissa training for the Olympic trials. Who is this boy? Uh, what, what did you do? I mean... Ain't no big deal. Dang. So you'd rather talk to the boy than be at the Olympic trials? Come on, man. This is exactly how I worked on my book, Out on the Wire. It's how I write this show, for that matter. For example, I found all the moments in my interview transcripts and research when somebody talked about focusing an idea, and I made little files of each, and then I grouped them together in a folder in Scrivener, which is the software I used to write. Of course, this is nonfiction, where you're dealing with many facts on the ground, quotes from real people, chronology that exists, When you're making fiction, you're inventing whole cloth. But still, you can usefully lump together various ideas you may have had about a phase of chronology, what characters might say and what might happen. But how does a bunch of stuff on the same topic, or even a chronological bit of action, magically transform into a scene? For me, once I did my cutting and grouping, I would read through and use subfolders to subgroup thoughts where they intersected and reflected on one another. So, for the ideas chapter, I grouped together all of the pieces that I had that referred to the focus sentence. Then I could shift the order of the folders around and figure out how to write the connective tissue that linked the bits together, which then became my narration. Each of those subfolders represented a scene, and scenes have little mini-arcs of their own. You could call this chapter, right now, in this podcast, a scene. It has no chronology that I haven't imposed on it, but it does follow an argument. I start by linking back to previous episodes and the work you've completed. Then I raise a question that I imagine you to be asking. How do I turn all this stuff into an actual story? What next? Then I give you a few tools, chronology and scenes. And my hope is that you're like, duh, just tell it in order. I can do that. Which may actually feel surprising and great, since the you I'm imagining at the beginning of this show may be feeling anxious, and now maybe you're feeling more in control. Remember how, in episode three, I said, 
The story you want to tell is about events or ideas that change something, change the world, change the person experiencing them. Change is your story. So the things about that person that caused change or felt change, those are the parts of the person that make up the character. So just as stories are about change and characters are about change, scenes are about change. A character enters a scene in one emotional state, then something happens, and then the character leaves in a different emotional state. Or we go from some conception to having our understanding challenged to coming to a new understanding of whatever it is. That's what I'm trying to do for you right now. Joe Richmond again. I think about there's there's the big narrative of the story, and then within that there are like you know narratives with chapters, and within that there are like these mini narratives of just every little moment. And just as importantly, a scene has a clear beginning and it has an end. Because if you don't have things that feel like it's starting a chapter and then it's ending a chapter, and this is beginning and this is ending, it's just mush. Mm-hmm. And you can deal with mush if you have a reporter coming in or a host coming in and saying, and then what happened was, if you don't have that, that mushy, run-on, sentence kind of feel is deadly. You know, when you're interviewing and when you're cutting tape, it's just, just beginnings and endings. It's all about beginnings and endings. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just the way I need to think about it. It's like right. how to build it with like little blocks. Many of the producers I talked to for Out on the Wire talked about scenes as rhythmic units. And it makes sense. You've got these cycles repeating. Beginning, middle, end. New beginning, middle, end. And these cycles fit within larger cycles, chapters, where you have a larger change, a larger emotional or informational difference between where you were and where you are now. Arcs within arcs. But what you really have to do is reinvent the story every three minutes. Really even shorter than that. Probably um, you're going to have a new scene at least every 90 seconds. And if you keep on turning that wheel and cranking that wheel, the story can go on for a very long time. What we can't do is just have a bunch of sit. It's got to move. Glenn Washington's show, Snap Judgment, has more evident rhythm than others. It soundtracks right through, and their tagline is storytelling with a beat. But Glenn's not talking about music. He's talking about scenes. Ira talked about this in an old article I uncovered from way back in 1998 on Current.org. He said that he'd analyzed a whole pile of NPR stories, and he found that every 45 or 50 seconds, you'll go to a piece of tape. And I love this part. I bring this up because I produced this writer named David Sedaris, and from the very first time I saw him read, I knew his work would work for the radio. Not only because it was completely original, and not only because he was really, really funny, and not only because he had a great reading style that was totally his, but he told anecdotes that ended every 45 or 50 seconds, and I knew I could make it work for Morning Edition. I love it because, I mean, not only this writer named David Sedaris, but because Ira explicitly draws the connection between rhythms in audio and in prose. If you're reading prose out loud, you'll be able to hear its rhythm. And I'll draw the connection for comics. You can often literally see scene changes so clearly in color or density of black or style. And flipping through a comic, you can sense its rhythm. Rhythm is a universal to storytelling. The thing is, your rhythm is very personal. You don't have to stick to the 45-second rule. Some writers will create leisurely long scenes, and some feel far more staccato. Your rhythm is your voice shining through. And identifying that voice is one way you'll figure out how you build scenes.
Chapter 2. Iterations. Okay, great. Thanks, Jess. Sit my ass down and start. That's super helpful. Seriously, what if it's not working? What if what you're writing just feels wrong? Does that mean your story hypothesis is crap? Well, my number one thought is it will sometimes feel wrong, and that's fine. That's okay. Just keep going. But my number two thought is, that's not what I do, and it's not what Radiolab does either. Soren Wheeler, senior producer at Radiolab and inventor of the Soren of episodes two and four, is maybe even more obsessed with collaboration than I am. So major, major emphasis on collaboration and... Major, major. In fact, also I would add, not just in terms of story structure and what does it feel right, and then edit like that in terms of writing. The, you know, way better, the, the really good writing comes out of an interaction between me and the producer, or me and Jad or whatever. It does not come out when they go back to sit down at their computer. Every version you've heard on the radio came out of... One person says, well, it's, it's like, blah, 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 blah. No, 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 no. It's like, da, 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 da. And then eventually you'll go back and forth. No, because that's too much. Like, how about da, 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 And it's always a said to other people thing. And then somebody will be like, stop, write that down. That one, that one that, that, that Andy just said that, that, no, that, is that okay? Write it. Yeah. Oh, good. Got it. And then you go into the studio and you might even tweak it a little in the studio after that because you're delivering it again. But um, yeah, so the writing is, happens in the space between two people. I don't see any way of making this without those kinds of interactions. And I think this moment right here, this is where I got the idea that has kind of changed my life in the last couple of years. Recording these conversations I have with Ben or Matt or Megan, my editor for the book Out on the Wire. Recording them and then going back to listen to the moments where something clicked to take notes. And even during the process of listening again, more things click. What do these collaborative conversations sound like? Often it's a lot of me explaining what I think needs to happen and the other person asking why. And then often we go back to my story Madlib and the ancillary questions. What happened first? What came next? What's interesting about it? Why does this matter? Ben and I just recently got a lot better at this after going through the gauntlet of producing episode four, Bare Bones. In that one, remember, I spent an extra week or two agonizing over my script because I really had not done the work to first figure out my focus sentence or my XY story formula or my Soren. And I did not get back on track until Ben asked me the right questions and I went through the process of figuring out the answers. And and what are those specific points that you're going to hit? So what, what tools are you using to sort of reassess these? And how do we chronologize this for the episode? I had a mess of writing, a big pile, but none of it made any sense without the focus. I had to go back and find that. This is what happens in my fantasy version of the best TV writer's rooms. Someone comes in with a basic story outline, and then in the writer's room, everyone's job is to ask the right questions to bring that story into being. Ira confirmed my dream at least occasionally comes true in reality. He was a big fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and he became friends with one of the writers, Marty Noxon. And once he had a chance to visit the set, he came away with a This American Life edit room meme. Can I tell you this thing about what does Buffy feel? Mm-mm. So this has become a shorthand among a bunch of us. <clears throat> but years ago, when Buffy the Vampire Slayer was still in the air, um, I basically talked my, my way 
onto the set and uh and, and sat in the writer's room at Buffy and that particular day for whatever reason Sir Michelle Geller had like a family the star of the show had like a family thing she had to deal with and was going to have to miss four days of shooting and so they needed to come up with a plot line for an episode of a tv show where their main character wouldn't be there and they came up very quickly with the idea of, well, let's have her turn invisible. And so that way she'll just shoot a scene for the beginning of the episode and for the end of the episode and for the other scenes, she'll just do voiceover later. And, uh, and that way we can shoot a whole episode and she wouldn't have to be here. Where are you? Don't strain yourself looking, Xander. I'm invisible, girl. David Fury was the writer who came up with this. He very, very quickly, like, he came up with a, a structure for the show, and they have a whiteboard, and he basically walked through, here's the beats of this, okay, this thing happens, this thing, she turns invisible, and then this happens, a scene with Spike, you know, you know, commercial break. And a very quick presentation to the rest of the staff to say, okay, here's what I'm thinking, what do you think? And he gets through the whole thing, and Marty says, yeah, but what does Buffy feel? Like, when's the, when's the moment where we register what her feelings are? Like, look at everything that's happening to her. She goes through this trauma, and she turns invisible, and nobody knows she's there, and like, nobody understands, and then she becomes visible again, and also there are all these other things. What does Buffy feel like? Like, we, we have to build in the spot where we see what she feels, which David obviously knew. No, I didn't ask for this to happen to me. Not too put off by it, though, are you? No. Maybe because for the first time since... I'm free. Free of rules and reports free of this life and 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 i th- think about that all the time because when when you walk through the plot like i was like oh the plot it, it totally it was really impressive like that episode's out there you can watch it and it pointed out to me the general principle that when you're doing a drama the reason why you're walking people through your plot is so we can feel along with them that you have to build in the spots where we will feel and i think a lot of people who come to to doing feature stories off of news, they're very awake to getting the plot points of a story. And, uh, but they're not so awake to understanding that they have to, they have to actually like get people to say their feelings at the different plot points so that we know how to feel along with them. If we don't remember why Buffy feels the way she feels, we forget the stakes. We forget why this struggle is important to her character and therefore to us. Kana Joffe-Walt is great at building scenes and telling a story chronologically, but remember when we heard from her in episode four? She talked about just this moment, where you have a pile of stuff written, but it's not feeling right. That's her moment to revisit the big why, the framing of the story. Why does the story matter? And so I often have a moment, like a third of the way into writing, where I'm like, where's the thing going to be where I'm sort of stepping back? And I think that the thoughts that I'm usually having are, um, oh, this is like that thing that everybody experiences. Okay, this is going to be interesting because of this reason, and I need to say that in some way explicitly so that people know that that's why this is interesting. You hit a point where you lose your sense of where you are, and it could happen very, very early in the process. And it will probably happen multiple times if you're writing anything with any kind of complexity at all. All this means is you need to reorient and revise. You've been experimenting in the lab, and you're getting your first results, 
and you realize you need to revisit your hypothesis, your story Madlib. Chapter 3. Meanwhile, back at the lab. So, since we all know I live in the land of Meta, I know you thought it was France, here's what happened to me yesterday. I've told you I've been working on Trish Trash, Roller Girl of Mars, for over eight years, but I'm just now about to start drawing the third book, which completes the first arc of the story. I finished the script a few weeks ago, and I gave it to Matt to read, and then we planned an editorial session so I could get his notes, and he opens with this bombshell. You've got a big problem with the ending, which is that you're writing a whole new storyline in the last two pages of the book, and I think readers, you're going to completely lose your readers. And as I told Ben later... When he said that, I was like, oh man, he's right. It had never occurred to me before. Since the beginning, I've had this vision for Trish Trash that would span three major story arcs. And I've had this idea for the end of the first arc that Trish would get on a ship and leave Mars. But what's the number one thought you'd have if a character is setting out to be the first Martian human to visit Earth in 150 years? What's going to happen? And I do not have a contract to create the second arc. There is no guarantee there will ever be a second arc. And I cannot leave all my readers hanging, possibly forever. And so I decided to refocus the ending, which I did by going back to the bare bones of the story. I looked at my hypothesis, and I used that to help me figure out where to go. There's one objective that you have to meet with this book, is that Trish has to be Roller Girl of Mars at the end of the book. What does Trish want, right? What does she really want? She wants to be a roller derby star. Like, I had set that up at the very beginning, that she wants to be a roller derby star. That is what the book is about. And if I didn't want to deal with those things, I should not set it, have set it up. That. I shouldn't have called it that in the first place, you know? But I can't just tear everything up and start over. The first volume of Trish Trash is already published, in French at least, and in English soon, I promise. It puts me in a position a little bit more like a nonfiction writer, because although I've made up all these facts... They are facts that exist in the story world, and I have to grapple with them. And so, you know, like there's a whole thread that gets established very, very early on in book one that her parents are missing. And I make this big deal about the fact that the parents are missing. And so I have to somehow resolve where they are, what's going on with them by the end of the book. Now, if I want, if I had just had this revelation about the end of the book, I might have dropped the whole thing about the the parents. Maybe it makes things too complicated, you know, why get into it? If I were drafting the whole book at the same time, maybe I could have gotten rid of that idea. But instead, it's it's fact. It's it exists. Trish will not get out unscathed. There will be losses on the path, but she will be Roller Girl of Mars. You need to know this process is normal. This constant back and forth is the writing process. And you don't need to take my word for it. I called up a couple of people from the working group who I knew were going through the same thing. Sarah Levitt is working on an historical fiction graphic novel about a serial killer who may or may not have actually existed. She's about a third of the way into drawing the book now. If you were tracing my progress on working on the story, it would be like a scribble that went back and forth and around um, and revisited places and um, then went further and then went back and revisited those places again. Every time I feel like it, my idea of the story shifts a little bit and I do have to keep going back and checking my focus, which has illuminated the fact that my focus has not been clear enough. I realized that there were just things that I wasn't super clear about mm-hmm. so that I, it, I had to rewrite that Mad Lib a bunch of times to actually figure out 
what that focus was. And then that in turn has shifted, not the, the main shape of the story, but, but how she moves through events and some of the particulars of those events. The Mad Lib itself, your understanding of what the story is and why it matters, will change again and again as you work. The structural underpinnings of the story and the execution of the story are in constant play against one another. This process happens over and over. Jason Merrifield is working on a short novel for NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month. We first talked about his story in Workshop Episode 3.5. For him, the story Madlib and the writing process inspired a new insight that will make his book exponentially more powerful. If I haven't put sufficient thought into it, to then try to sit down and write it, it you can often feel like you're lost and not exactly sure where you're going to get the next place. So by having using the Madlib to give myself more signposts and more goals that I want to meet in a story... Uh, then writing becomes a little bit easier because I, I don't have to go on my own for as much for as long. Specifically, Jason had a revelation about his main character, Sydney. She's a hard-boiled detective whose father was a community organizer, and she reveres him. He's a major motivator behind the way she lives her life. But then Jason realized he could push the character, test her, by damaging her image of her father. This idea that her father isn't going to match up to the white knight status that she gave him is going to be a big realization for her. And I felt I felt a huge rush when that idea came to me. And I had to stop and I had to go make sure that I was thinking the right things. And I ran to Google and I looked up the specific Jimmy Hoffa story. How did he, uh, what was his story in life? How did he come up? How did he, how, what's his eventual downfall? Uh, Google didn't know where Jimmy Hoffa's body was, but uh, <laughs> I did the best I could. Um, but it was a, it was this really big rush, and I think that because I was more planned out in the beginning, it helped me to get there. It helped me to get come to that realization, and it's more of a, a why, not a, a what. I knew the what's, but the why's start to come to a little bit easier. You're never done with your research, with the three big questions for a character-based work. Who is the protagonist? What does he want? And what stands in his way? You're never done with your story Mad Lib. It's a living document. The hardest part of the job is the changing of scales. And it might be you're focused on like one little piece of tape that you were deeply in love with that you're trying to make work right up against this other piece of tape. Soren and I were talking on Skype and he pushed his face up close to the camera to demonstrate. And I like all definitely like endlessly uh, tell my producers, bounce it, put it on your phone, walk around the block with it or listen to it somewhere, you know, like move your physical position and listen to it in a different space because this at your computer is your zeroed in production place. It's like having a, you write something, you put it in a drawer for a month, and then you read it. I mean, there's just no other, there's no other way than, than, you know, and one of the big things with producers is they'll, when they're in their tight mode making something, you know, are you ready with a draft? Oh, not quite yet. You know, because I'm just like, oh, well, how now? Are you ready? Well, no, I have still have this problem. And it's like, my move is always like, I don't care if it's a pile of shit on a plate, you're going to put, put it in front of me. And, 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 then, and then I'm your friend. I, I asked you for a pile of shit. So when I look at it and say it's a pile of shit, I'm not saying that as a critical boss. I'm saying, oh, yes, this was a pile of shit, you know, which is what I expected it to be because you hadn't had much time with it. But, like, they just have to get it out, put it in front, bring it back in, get it out, put it in front, bring it back in, get it out. If they haven't done that six times, right. that's not, not going to be a good story. 
God, God is like iterations should be some kind of religion. Iterations should be some kind of religion. I think if I did a word cloud of my interview with Soren, the largest word after the would be iterations. I love this advice. Get in deep and work solo. Then go to a cafe and talk it through with a friend. Then listen to the tape of that conversation and analyze. Dive in again. Spend some time with your story Mad Lib. Iterate. Chapter 4. Who is that guy again? And then the other thing that can happen is that you get so deep in your story, not only do you lose sight of your hypothesis, you let your audience lose track of it too. Being there, I did a story for Roman, a fence story. And, um... Sean Cole is talking about working with Roman Mars on some other sign that people do not totally regret life. 99% Invisible, episode number 59, which we talked about in Out on the Wire, episode 4. And what I realized I was doing was making sure at every turn of the story, everybody was super, super clear on what was going on and who was who, which is not something I ever would have done before. And that's something that Radiolab does well and in spades, is it's like, all right, so remember, we're like, you know, this is what, you know, like, okay, this is that guy. Who's that guy? That is that guy. Okay. You know, and like, at first I thought that's kind of annoying, but then I was like, oh no, then I would like listen to old pieces of mine and be like, oh no, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> I don't know who's talking. You know what I mean? So That's what happens when you put a project away for a while. You start to be able to have enough perspective to edit it like an outside person would. We, I say some, I name a person that we've heard of and, and he's like, who is he again? You know, and I, and I say, you know, and that's what I mean by like checking in and making sure like everybody knows what's happening. And why things are important, like, that's something Radiolab does a ton. This is crazy. And I'm going to tell you why it's crazy. And you can sell a lot of ideas that way. Signposting. Signposting is, that's what I'm trying to say, yeah. Signposting is something I got from Radiolab. Radiolab signposts like a mother all over the place. And I was kind of, at first I was like, ah, I really need to, like, flag everything. But then I was like, actually, you know, it keeps people in the game, kind of. But signposting might be the hardest part of the story to envision correctly, because you're in way too deep. So when you do talk about your work with someone, there'll be moments when you can tell from their face that they're lost, and that's where you need a signpost to get them oriented again. And you just, you've like gone through it so many times, like you're not going to get lost. You're never getting lost in this information. Like this information is a groove in your brain. So you don't need signposts. Right. Yeah, no, totally. Signposting is probably one of the most things, you know, like collaborative, yeah, collaborative elements or something yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah, And that's what radio people call the edit. We'll talk about the edit, which I often call a critique, soon, in episode eight. Which is not the next episode, I'm afraid. Because in between, we're going to have to go through the dark forest. Don't worry, I'll hold your hand. Now for this week's challenge. Okay, this week you can probably guess what I'm going to say. Write a scene. It can be any scene. It doesn't have to be at the beginning. Here's what I want you to do. Is there chronology to rely on? Great. Start with that. If not, put your ideas or bits of tape in an order that builds from individual elements to a coherent argument. Ask yourself questions. Why is this scene in the story? What do we get from it? What does Buffy feel? What change does it represent? Remember, just as stories are about change and characters are about change, scenes are about change. Write it, then iterate it. 
Read it out loud to someone and get feedback. Record it, then listen on your headphones while taking a walk. Rewrite. Then check it against your hypothesis. Does the scene change what you understand about your story? I'll have show notes on this episode, including links to the stories we referenced and some fantastic resources our members have turned up on my site at jessicaable.com slash podcast. You can also get show notes emailed to you if you're on the newsletter. If you love Out on the Wire and want to support the show, check out the Out on the Wire bonus pack. In it, you get full music downloads from the show and complete versions of our new interviews, including Stephanie Fu, Jonathan Mitchell, Kazu Kibuishi, Robert Smith, and more. It's a great way to spend some time with our awesome guests and support the show at the same time. It's only $10, or more if you're feeling generous, for over eight hours of bonus content. Find out more at jessicaable.com slash podcast. You can find me on Twitter at jccable. Benjamin is at Benjamin Frisch. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, and Pinterest, and those links are on our webpage. Out on the Wire is produced by Benjamin Frisch with music contributed by Matt Madden made with the support of La Maison des Auteurs Angoulême. And special thanks to our voice actor this episode, Gilles Collard. See you in a week with Benjamin Frisch and Matt Madden for a discussion of some of your work from the Out on the Wire Working Group in our workshop episode. And then in two weeks with episode seven. Dark Forest. Dark Forest.